to Matt and the team for leading us and encouraging us this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. We're looking at the parable, the well-known parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. So in this series on the gospel and our world, we're setting ourselves the goal of seeing our world through gospel eyes, living gospel-connected lives. It's because of the gospel that Jesus is not just our Savior, but our Lord. And it's for the gospel that we willingly engage our pluralistic society. And it's for the gospel that we even live under the authority seeking the public good. And it's that last topic that we looked at last week that we'll tease out a little bit more this morning as we approach this topic of uh, the social justice or, or the gospel and social justice. But before we read there, I do want us to understand the flow of the passage before we read it so that as we read it we can kind of understand what's going on. Uh, Jesus here is approached by a lawyer, uh, a, a Jewish expert in the Torah, and as many others before him, this lawyer approaches Jesus to test him, to trap him. Uh, this lawyer wasn't sincere in his motives. Uh, he wasn't sincere in faith, no, he wanted to find Jesus out. This lawyer comes with a self-righteous attitude seeking to justify himself. And it's this self-justifying attitude, this, this self-righteousness that Jesus confronts us with in this passage. A self-righteousness that has no real substance and that, has, that is only theoretical and not practical in nature. I want you to see the flow of the confrontation. So there's the first section, verse 25 to 28. We see that the lawyer approaches the question. Verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus responds in verse 26 with another question. And then in verse 27, the lawyer gives his answer. And then Jesus ends off that section, verse 28, with an affirmation and an exhortation. Now, in the second section, we see the same pattern. Verse 29, there's a question from the lawyer, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives a parable and a question, verse 30 to 36. The lawyer gives his answer, and again, Jesus responds with an affirmation and an exhortation. Now, why am I pointing out all of this? I want you to see in this text that Jesus isn't questioning what the lawyer knows. No, Jesus, in fact, it's very clear that, that this lawyer knows quite a bit. Rather, what Jesus is doing is Jesus questioning the lawyer's practice of what he knows. That's why Jesus ends both exhortations with this command, go do this. Because Jesus' innuendo is that if you have all this good knowledge, then is it practically influencing your life? So I think it's important for us to see that flow before we read. So let's read verse 25 to verse 37. This is God's word. Let's hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. And we so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we have your word. And we pray, dear Lord, that as we've heard your word read, we pray that we would receive it and hear it and accept it for what it truly is, your word, not the words of me. We pray that you would impart its truth to our hearts so that you would work in us through your word. We do thank you that your word is a is living and active, a two-edged sword. Thank you that your word is able to discern the thoughts of our hearts and minds. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would shine the light of your word to us this morning, that we would see the righteousness that you desire, the people that you want us to be, we pray that you would give us an understanding mind, that we would see and understand your truths, and that we would keep your law, and that we would be a people who observe your law, and observe it with all of our hearts. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us with this, help me in my definite weakness, and help us in our neediness to see beautiful and glorious things of you in your word. We pray this in the majestous name of our Lord and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's very easy for us, and it's very easy for what we say to become disconnected with how we live. Let me give you a few examples of this. Karl Marx, the famous socialist, the the great opponent of capitalism, the supposed defender of the working class, was never actually part of the working class. I'm not sure if you knew that. He he held one job his entire life as a part-time journalist. For most of his life, he lived off donations and gifts and inheritances from friends and family members. In fact, Marx was financially uh, sustained by his friend Frederick Engels, who supported Marx with the profit he made from his family's factory, textile factory. A factory that Marx never worked in, never assisted in, and never even visited. Now pause and think about what that means for a second. The guy who called capitalists, quote, 
lazy sponges living off stolen labor from the workers, himself never contributed a shred of work to a factory of workers who supported him. See, it's easy for us to, it's easy to, for what we say to become disconnected from how we live. But perhaps Marx is an easy target. Let's look at it a bit closer to home. George Whitfield, the great preacher of the gospel who declared freedom in Christ, was a slave owner. Although he spoke against the harsh and inhuman treatment of slaves, although he often affectionately preached to them the wonders of the gospel, although he even started an orphanage for, that cared for African-American children, Whitfield still owned slaves, and to his shame, there is evidence that he even advocated for it. And so let me say again, with sadness, it's very easy for what we say to become disconnected to how we live. It's easy to, to have the theory, but not the practice. And beloved, may I suggest to you, this passage is calling us not to be comfortable with the right theory that is devoid and divorced from the right practice. To, to, to hopefully explain something of this, I want you to see this morning uh, a few points in, in this particular passage. Two, two points I want us to consider this morning. Uh, and the first one is simply this, the danger of a theoretical love. You see this in verse 25 to 28. In, in that passage, we see very clearly that this lawyer in this text has his theory down. He has a good theology. He is well-read, well-studied. And he knows that to inherit eternal life, to be saved, to be right with God, one needs to perfectly keep God's law. And not just some parts of God's law, all of God's law. That's why he sums up the law in two commands. First, he to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength which is from Deuteronomy 6.5, which sums up the first part of the Ten Commandments. He also understands that we must love our neighbor as ourselves, from Leviticus 19.18, which sums up the second part of the Ten Commandments. See, this lawyer, like Jesus, in Matthew 22.37-40, he understands that all of the law is summarized in this. Love God and love others. See, this lawyer correctly understands that we are to be a people who love. See, this lawyer has good theology. He knows what pleases God. And Jesus even responds with affirmation. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, now, we need to pause here and ask the question, is Jesus teaching you that we are saved by works? Is Jesus saying we inherit eternal life by our works? No, Jesus here is simply affirming the righteousness that the, Lord, that the law requires. The law requires us to love God fully, wholly, perfectly. The law requires us to, to love our neighbors as ourselves consistently and sincerely. And, and so the question is, have we done this? Have you loved the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And I hope the answer is very clear to us this morning. We haven't. 
None of us have kept God's law. None of us have kept God's holy, righteous, and good law. In fact, to the contrary, we have broken it. We have sinned against it. See, Jesus' affirmation of the law's law's requirement here actually condemns us all. And see, it's this that this lawyer, with all of his theology and all of his theory and all of his knowledge, fails to understand If he fully understood what Jesus was affirming here, he should have responded by falling to his knees and crying out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He should have asked, Lord, I've broken your law. How can I be saved? See, if the lawyer responded with with humility, recognizing his brokenness because of his sin, recognizing his inability to save himself, I have little doubt Jesus would have told him with, man, this is impossible, but all things are possible with God. I'm sure Jesus would have told him that it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help. And therefore, I'm sure he would have told him, repent and believe the gospel Because whoever believes the gospel has eternal life. You see, the way to inherit eternal life is to come humbly, to come broken by your sin, to come with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has kept the law perfectly for us. You see, that's required for us to to be saved. Yet this isn't the way that this lawyer comes. This lawyer comes with self-righteousness, Seeking to justify himself. Now, why am I pointing this out to you this morning? I I want you to see that this lawyer only has a theoretical knowledge of God. He only has a theoretical understanding of what it means to love God. He knows that God is to be loved. He knows that God is to be loved completely. He knows that we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Yet he knows nothing of his own failure. His own sinfulness. He knows nothing of his need for forgiveness. And because this lawyer knows nothing of his sin, I would argue this lawyer knows nothing of what it actually means to love God. Now, how can I say that? Well, a few chapters earlier in Luke 7, we encounter a very sinful woman that Jesus forgives. And we're told that she loved him much. Why? Because she was forgiven much. Luke seven forty seven. he says, he who is forgiven little loves little. See, that woman loved much because she recognized her many, many sins. She knew what it meant to love the Lord, her God, with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, but the problem with this lawyer is, in our passage, he, he, he loves little because he's been forgiven little, and he's been forgiven little because he actually hasn't recognized his sin. And what I want you to see, beloved, it's, it's one thing to have a theoretical knowledge of God, but it's an entirely different thing for that love to God to be experiential, to be personal. And my point is this. Beware the danger of a theoretical love for God. Where we have good theology, we know what God wants of us, yet it hasn't actually sunk into our hearts. It's easy to have good theology. Just go read a good book. It's easy to know the right things. 
It's a whole lot more harder to move beyond theory to experience. It's easy to to have theology in the head, but not in the heart. And so what we need to be concerned here as we look at this example of this lawyer is be concerned if you're comfortable with just having an intellectual, theoretical knowledge of God, of His law, of His requirements, of, of what it means to love Him. So that's the first thing I want you to see, the danger of a theoretical love. Now, how... Can you know if you have an experiential love of God? How can you know that that you don't just have a theoretical knowledge of God? How can you know that you actually know God and love God? How can you know that your theology isn't just head knowledge, but a heart experience? That leads me to the second thing I want you to see this morning. And that is the, the duty of practical mercy. See, true knowledge in the head will infect the heart and will move the hands. See, our love for God is seen and displayed and proved by our love for fellow men. More specifically, as this parable shows us, our love for God is seen, displayed, and proved by the practice of mercy toward our neighbor. See, there is an undeniable link and relationship between the first great commandment to love the Lord your God and the second to love your neighbor as yourself. As one commentator put, love of God means love for man. See, a true love for God moves and motivates a a love for others. In fact, a, a refusal to love your neighbor as yourself casts doubt on your love for God. We need to recognize that relationship. And what we see here is that this lawyer tries to limit who his neighbor is. He says, who is my neighbor? So he's trying to limit his neighbor. His neighbor are those who are like him. Uh, That's what the Jews thought initially in uh, in the early church. They thought that their neighbor was Jews like themselves. Yet Jesus radically blows this out of the water with this parable. In fact, Jesus uses this parable to turn the question upside down. Look with me quickly at verse 29. Look at how the lawyer asked the question. Who is my neighbor? Now listen to how Jesus changes that question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Did you see what Jesus done? He's changed the question. He's He's changed the object into the subject. He's changed the question from who is my neighbor to am I a neighbor? From what kind of person my neighbor is to what kind of person I am. See, if the commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, the question shouldn't be who is my neighbor. No, the question should be who am I supposed to be? And the answer is I'm supposed to be a person who loves Or or, or say differently, Jesus changes the question from a who to a how. Instead of asking, who is my neighbor, the question should be, how can I love my neighbor? The question shouldn't be, what kind of people are worthy of my love? No, the question should be, how can I become a person who loves my neighbor regardless of who they are, their status, their position? See, ultimately, Jesus is changing this question. In changing this question, Jesus is saying, love does not ask, who do I have to love? No, love asks, how can I love those in need? Now, when the question is phrased that way, then the answer becomes mercy. 
in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see a picture of what it looks like to truly love your neighbor as yourself. And what does it look like? It looks like compassionate, caring, costly mercy that is practical, hands-on, deed-driven displays of love. In fact, I want you to see four things regarding the practice of mercy this morning. The first thing I want you to see is the compassion of mercy. Look at what it says in verse 33. When he saw him, he had compassion. See, unlike the priest and the Levite who just came back from worshiping God, the Samaritan sees the half-dead man and he has compassion. He is moved to show mercy. Now, I think about that for a second. The priest and the Levite who, who just returned from Jerusalem, who just come to worship the one true living God, who claim to love God, they see this man and they fail to have compassion on a wounded man. And see, Jesus is very purposeful here. He wants us to see their lack of love. He, he wants us to see their hypocrisy, which casts doubt on their love for God. See, you can know much. You can have right theology. You can attain all the means of grace. You can follow all the right religious rituals. Yet a lack of love toward the helpless, a lack of compassion to the needy, a lack of mercy towards those who, will, who are vulnerable will often contradict your claims of following and loving the one true God. See, not so the Samaritan, the, the hated, half, uh, half, uh, hated and despised half Jew. He, on the other hand, is moved with compassion and, and mercy. See, this Samaritan actually is a, a beautiful picture of Christ for us. In Matthew 9, 36, we, we are told this of Christ. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like a shepherd without a sheep. Like sheep without a shepherd. See, mercy is motivated and moved by compassion. Look, this compassion for the weak, for the helpless, for the vulnerable is an undeniable and unavoidable Christ-like characteristic. One that should be evidence in those who claim the name of Christ. So, so I want you to see the Christ-like compassion that motivates mercy. But, but secondly, I want you to see what characterizes this mercy, and that is the care of mercy. Verse 34 says, He went to him and bound him up, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. See, unlike the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side, the Samaritan goes directly to the man in need, sees his need, and gives himself to care. I love this quote by, by Tim Carey. He said this, Mercy is the impulse that makes us sensitive to the hurts and lacks, lacks in others and makes us desire to alleviate them. That's what we see here. The Samaritan doesn't just feel pity and sympathy. No, the Samaritan is moved to action. He practically shows mercy by seeking the physical well-being of this man. He, he doesn't cast a blind eye. See, this is a concrete, hands-on, get your hands dirty, get uncomfortable, use your time to help others in need. 
is in this something that the Bible teaches us, James 2, 15 to 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So we see here that the Samaritan beautifully illustrates this for us. He, he goes and he sees the need and gives of himself. See, faith without work, our works is dead, and mercy without action is absolutely useless. So I want you to see the, the cost of mercy. It takes effort. It takes inches. It takes giving yourself to the cause of another. Then thirdly, I, I want you to see the cost of mercy. Look at verse 35, the cost of mercy. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Isn't that amazing? The Samaritan pays from his own pocket to care for the stranger and commits himself to pay whatever other costs the stranger might incur. See, not only is the Samaritan risking his own safety by going to this man, mountains are notorious for robbery, and not only does he sacrifice his time and his effort, but he sacrifices his own wealth for a stranger. See, the, the Samaritan is willing to, to count the cost in order to help the vulnerable, in order to help the helpless. Again, uh, this is something that the scriptures call us to. First John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, he closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word or talk, not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See, John is saying loving. Uh, John is saying loving in word only, only with with words and not action is loving with no real cost to self and is no real love. See, practical mercy is a sign of true love that is willing to count the cost. It gives itself even financially to help those in need. So I want you to see those three things. The, the compassion of mercy, the, the care of mercy, the cost of mercy. And that leads us to the third, fourth thing, and that is the call of mercy. Look at what Jesus says in verse 37. You go and do likewise. Let us realize this call to show mercy is not optional. No, it's a requirement of all who wish to be righteous before the Lord. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Keller says this. Jesus used the work of mercy to show us the essence of the righteousness that God requires in our relationships. That is to say, when Jesus explains the second commandment or the second greatest commandment of the law, and he explains it with the picture of, of this practical mercy of the Good Samaritan, he's saying, This is the righteousness that God desires. This is the righteousness that God looks for in his people. Righteousness that is seen in practical, hands on, self sacrificial, other-serving mercy. Again, it's not enough to, to know that we must love God and love others. No, we're called to actually love God and actually love others. 
Our neighbor is not that one who is like us, those people that we like, those who are the same class, those who have the same status. No, it is whoever we meet in need. Again, the scriptures make this abundantly clear. Galatians 6, 9 to 10. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do, do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. See, this is God's will for you, dear people. This is Christ's will for us. That we are those who do good, who show mercy. Luke 6, 37, Jesus says, Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. If you want motive for that, consider Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So it's important to see what it actually looks like and what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It is mercy that is compassionate. Caring and costly. And it's a mercy that we're called to emulate. Now, as I conclude, it feels like I'm going through this very quickly, but as I conclude, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, so when are you going to get to social justice? When are you going to talk about that heated topic? Well, you realize I've intentionally not even mentioned it. Because with all the controversy and confusion around social justice, we would do better, I think, to come back to what the scriptures simply say about righteousness. And make no mistake about it, this passage, this parable is all about righteousness. And realizing scripture, righteousness and justice go hand in hand. Proverbs 21.3 says, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Psalm 106 verse 3, Blessed are they who observe justice... And who do righteousness at all time. See, those two ideas, those two terms are intimately related. The biblical idea of justice means to intervene into a situation where things have gone wrong. It means to take up the cause of the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed. It means to seek that which is right, to put things right, to pursue righteousness. Christopher Wright puts it this way, justice is what needs to be done in any given situation if people and circumstances are to be restored to righteousness. Or, or simply said more easily, justice pursue righteousness and righteousness demands justice. See, these are two terms we cannot get away with. This is God's desire for us. And why is it so important? Why is pursuing justice and righteousness acceptable before God? Why is pursuing justice and righteousness a blessing? Because fundamentally, justice and righteousness are theological in nature. What I mean with that is this. They relate to who God is, to how God works, and to what God loves. Listen again to a few songs. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 106, verse 3, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 33, verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast love. You get the point. If we truly love the Lord our God, then we would care about justice and righteousness. 
See, justice and righteousness are theological because they point us to a God who is marked by these things and who delights in these things. See, the righteousness that the law requires, the, the righteousness that God wants of his people is not some intellectual, theoretical knowledge of loving God and loving men. No, it's the righteousness that is hands-on, practical, self-sacrificial, other-serving mercy. Mercy that is compassionate and caring and costly. Mercy that takes up the cause of the weak. Mercy that is simply also called justice. See, love seen in practical mercy, which moves beyond theoretical to the practical, is what biblical social justice is all about. And so what we need to see in this passage is that a true love for God is seen in the practice of mercy. And the question for us is this, are we going to take up this call for practical mercy? Are we going to show compassion to the vulnerable, risking our comfort, risking our safety? Are we going to pursue active and personal care of those who need, in need, meeting them in their need? Are we going to count the cost of caring for the abandoned and the helpless to sacrifice even financially to help and care for them? Or will we be a people who are comfortable with a theoretical love devoid of practical mercy? Will we be a people who, where there's a disconnect between what we say and how we live? We need to recognize that danger and avoid that danger. And so how do we, how does the change come about? How do we move from a theoretical to a practical? How do we move from, from a theoretical love for God to a practical mercy? Well, the answer is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This good Samaritan is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who sees us in our need. He doesn't see us half dead, but he sees us fully dead in our sin. And in mercy, he draws near. He takes our sin upon himself. He lives a life of righteousness in our stead. He goes to Calvary to pay for our sin, to purchase our righteousness. And he gives us his Holy Spirit to, to make that righteousness our own as we imitate him and follow him. See, the gospel necessitates a practical mercy because the gospel is rooted in a God who shows mercy. And so, we, so may we be a people who desire practical mercy, who, who are zealous for this, or for the glory and, God, glory and honor of our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in Jeremiah, you tell us to not boast in our riches, in our wisdom, in our might. But you tell the one to boast, to boast in this, that they know you, the one true living God, the God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. We're told that it's in these things that you take the light. And we pray, dear Lord, that as your people set apart in the gospel, we pray that we would be motivated with love, that we'd be moved by compassion, and that that love would be seen in deeds and actions of justice that seek the cause of the helpless, the vulnerable, ultimately to fulfill all righteousness, to live rightly before you, to honor you and praise you. 
Lord, help us where we have fallen short. And just help us to, to not be distracted by all the controversies and all the debates around this issue of social justice. But help us to actually see what you desire of us. A love that is marked by practical mercy. Oh, dear Lord, have mercy upon us. Enthrall us again with the gospel. The gospel that declares that there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiveness because he in mercy has given himself for us. And dear Lord, may we give ourselves to others for the sake of the gospel. To point them to the one who has saved us. Oh, dear Lord, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.